0: Well, again, thank you for tuning in today. I uh, always wanted to be a radio preacher, and uh, <laughs> here's the, uh, my chance. Uh, before I get started today, I want to, uh, you know, uh, you've heard this week, obviously, that the, the battle that we're in with this uh, coronavirus is, is, is actually a war. And, you know, even President Trump you know, declared himself as a wartime president, and I totally understand that. Obviously, this is this is a worse enemy than fighting any enemy we've ever fought in history because it's easier to kill them. But just, this thing is just out of control. And you know, and I want to thank all of my leaders, uh, actually everybody, uh, for showing up Thursday night. You know, we had to. Uh, you know, we had to put in place very quickly a, a process to uh, take care of each other and take care of our infrastructure. and, uh, you know, I just really appreciated everybody uh, you know, showing up and, and standing up. You know, in a war, certainly in the military, uh, you know, you have a chain of command, and a military has to operate uh, and lead from the top down. It uh, never from the bottom up, or never from the midline. It always has to start, and it always follows uh, from the top down. And you know that's because uh, uh, you always have young guys who maybe it's their first time in combat, or maybe they're uh, you know they've never been in that long and and everything. And it's it can be war can be a scary thing. And it's a it's a the stability of the upper echelon of leadership. Uh, where those young guys can look around in the midst of chaos and see uh, the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains and the majors uh, standing firm and, and holding the line. Uh, that is so important in anything. And that's really what you saw Thursday night with the leadership showing up and really uh, standing up and, and, and going to take care of, of everything. And, and we, we have got to plot a course through this. There's no question about it. We have got to not only plot a course through it, but it's my responsibility to lead our people through it. And uh, so we're going to do and follow all of the precautions that we should, And uh, but we're going to take care of our own, and we're going to do it to the best of our ability. And I really want to thank, you know, I had so many, uh, first of all, the young singles and the young uh, uh, high school kids in our church, you know, so many of them showed up Thursday night and you know, they they came up to me afterwards and they said, hey, whatever you need. If there's older folks in the church that need food or need this and need that. And, you know, that's what you want to look for in people. I mean, this church has given so much to, uh, to everybody that we can. And, and certainly the young men and the young ladies that we've given to. And now when a time comes like this, it's time to give back. It's time to, to rise up. And I just can't tell you how much it meant to me that all those young guys you know that have been in our church maybe a year, two years, and they're still but they want to be leaders, and many of them are they stood up, they were here, and they said, "I'll do whatever I got to do to help you uh you know, so many kids would be off watching a movie someplace or hanging out with their friends and but it was important for them to be here, and that that speaks well of 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 them and our church, and I just want to thank everybody across the board for uh doing all all that you did. Now, we're in Proverbs chapter 30, and uh, we're talking about, over the last couple of weeks, the words of Agar. And you know from our first time when we broke into this chapter uh, that he has two requests that he wants before he dies. One of them is to remove vanity and lies from him. He wants the truth. But then he asks for balance in that truth. And as I said, you know, there's no two greater questions than anybody could ask for. Certainly, with what we're going through now, uh, not only the truth, but the balance of the truth. I mean, there have been so many rumors flown around this week. Uh, I mean, uh, I heard everything from the National Guard was being deployed for martial law to uh, that somebody watched the movie Outbreak, and they were going to drop one of the big bombs over us and suck all the air out of the place to kill it. Uh, you know, it's a thing where what we really need now is truth, but a balance in truth. And times like this can be you know, it can be scary. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we started to look at the uh, greatest time period in the history uh, outside the first coming of Christ with the generation of the regathering of the nation of Israel. And with that, we saw the world come uh, completely changing in the last 50 years. It's been an incredible uh, thing to look at and to watch. And I began to lay out the four key aspects of this generation to help us better understand where we're at in relationship to the second coming of Christ and, you know, as we go forward in this. You know, the Bible makes it clear that no man knoweth the day and the hour, uh, but uh, it's likened to a woman in travail. That's a woman who's having a baby. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, It says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. The times and the seasons are always a key in the Bible because they really focus on, you know, what uh, uh, all dealing with the end times and the second coming and the tribulation period. And he says, for those times you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Uh, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Here it is, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. We don't know for sure um, when a woman is going to have a child. I mean, she conceives, she gets pregnant, and she goes to the doctor and they give her a due date. But most women, I mean, there are exceptions to that for sure, but most women never really hit their due date. And that's the way it is with with the second coming. Uh, It's like the nation of Israel being the woman with child, and she's going to give birth, but you don't know for sure the exact day, but any woman who's had a child uh, knows that it's coming pretty close, and you better not get too far from home, and that's really where we're at today. Verse 11, a couple weeks ago, we looked at that this generation will curse their father and not bless their mother. And I took you back to the book of Job, and I actually connected it to Genesis chapter 6 with the days of Noah, uh, which is Matthew 24, 37, and showed you in Job 21, 22, uh, this generation that was alive back then that fits exactly where the generation is we're at today. And I showed you how that this is, the generation from 1948 when Israel becomes a nation up to uh, the time that we live in and then on up to the rapture of the church. Verse 12 says that this generation will be self-righteous uh, in its own eyes, uh, but without God and without Christ, not washed from their filthiness, it says. We used a little phrase that they're whitewashed, but they're not washed white. And that's so true of how it all works. And they, we've completely lost in every aspect today uh, the doctrines of salvation, the great principles that show you uh, what salvation really is and actually what it takes for a person to be saved. And moving in, uh, you know, into a Christianity uh, without any truth uh, that's run by emotions and feelings and not based on the Word of God. This generation of Christianity has degenerated to the place, as I told you last week, and I gave you a number of these, but my favorite is Isaiah 5.20, which simply says that in this generation, evil is now called good, and good is now called evil. You know, this generation will lift up its eyes, loftily, but they'll never see anything from God or what God has. This generation is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 19-20. They're spiritually blind. They can't see, nor can they understand. And Christianity today is fundamentally groping its way through life, uh, but never able to come to any absolute truth. And you remember I took you to Matthew chapter 24, and I showed you how to define this generation based on Uh, two questions that uh, Christ was asked by his disciples. In that chapter, they say, what is going to be the sign of our coming in the end of the world? And he takes that chapter and he answers that question. And this generation, the final one, will be of Israel being restored uh, back to the land and how that uh, will be uh, our generation, the last one before the Lord comes back. And I also showed you two other keys, the days of Noah and the days of Lot, how they figure into it. And how everything around us today is a prelude to uh, the coming events of Christ's coming kingdom. It's like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 5. We all can see, if you're paying attention, the handwriting is on the wall for America and everything that is coming its way. Then last week, I took the time, and I think you'll see the value in that this week, I took the time to put all of our material into an understandable format of Israel uh, through the budding of the fig tree and how that is an incredible picture of of what's really happening. And, you know, forming for you as best I could a complete balance of a historical context, a present-day context, but also a future context. And I did this by breaking down the nation of Israel's history into uh, just a few simple concepts to, to uh, understand, because I want you to see how important that was last week of where we're going and where we, we have been. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament looks complicated. It really does. But the Old Testament is really basically uh, a very simple thing. I mean, I, you've got a lot of people, a lot of places, a lot of events. I get that. But if you just want to look at the Old Testament and get an understandable format of what's happening, it's just a built around the nation of Israel in five segments. And those five segments work all the way through the Old Testament. I mean, you take from Genesis to Exodus, what you have there is just a simple formula of the formulation of the nation of Israel. All that he does, you know, up to that point, and when they go down into Egypt, uh, you know, he has formulated that. In Exodus chapter 12, they come out. And there we see from Exodus chapter 12 up through the next four books to the end of Deuteronomy, we see the calling out, the 40 years of wandering and how they're going to the promised land. When we get into Joshua, uh, you know, all the way up to David and Solomon, we see the establishment now of the nation of Israel. And then after Solomon, when Rehoboam and Jeroboam come on the scene, we begin to see a decline of the nation of Israel and then by the time you get to the end of the Bible in the, in the, in the King's book, Second Chronicles and Kings, you see the captivity of the nation of Israel. And then as we studied already the times that the Gentiles then begin to come in. And we've now been in, uh, uh, you know, for 2,500 years. That's the way that it has been. Then I showed you looking at that, you know, God's timetable of God's hand in our modern times. And I showed you that after 2,500 years of Israel being out of the land, the hand of God in the middle of the 1800s began with the Zionist movement, and I, I showed you how that worked. Then I brought you into you know the monarchs of Europe and how Europe was a lockdown of monastery, monarchs and kings and queens, and how that World War One broke that, and I then I took you into World War II and I simply tried to show you the hand of God through all of this that God used World War I to get the land ready for the Jew and then World War II to get the Jew ready for the land. And voila, 1948, Israel's back in the nation of Israel. And I showed you the birth of Israel, May the 15th, 1948. Then I I took time to show you the opposition to it. Four wars and hundreds and hundreds of conflicts uh, you know, to get them out of the land. And, uh, you know, in Matthew chapter 24, going back to our definitive chapter, verse 33 says, "...so likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors." And, uh, you know, that door is an incredible study in the Bible. Uh, it's one of the great key things that you want to look at. You find it in Revelation chapter 4. John chapter 10 is a great one. Genesis chapter 6 with Noah. Uh, Revelation 19, the second coming, and of course Matthew chapter 25. All great key passages to one of the great studies in the Bible on the door. Now today, given all that and bringing you back up because we're going to use those things to look forward today, we're going to look at the fourth part of this generation. Remember now I've given you three so far. And uh, this will uh, move into the uh, more move farther along in chapter 30. And then we're going to look at five sets of four things in the weeks to come about this generation, and it's going into, in time, the tribulation period, which is defined so clearly for us in Matthew chapter 24. Now, let me say this. If you ever wanted to see, and I, and I don't know how deep you get into the Bible or you put all these things together, Uh, But if you ever want to see the phoniness of higher education when it comes to the Bible or scholarship about the Bible, at its worst, the Alexandrian cult, as I like to call them, you just want to take some time and read these guys when they hit a place like Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, nothing will show you their stupidity uh, with the Scriptures faster than them trying to explain places like we're going to look at even today and then move on down the line in the next couple of weeks. I mean, man, they're as lost as a golf ball in high weeds. They, they can never get the truth and never get to it. I mean, the pulpit commentary. The pulpit commentary has been held up over the years as the greatest commentary uh, for young preachers and preachers, and I don't know how many sermons guys couldn't, could never get together uh, without the pulpit commentary. And all that tells me is your sermons are as worthless as the pulpit commentary. It's the biggest joke you ever saw in your life. Matthew Henry came out with a commentary. And, uh, you know, people get a hold of that, and I'll get asked time from time, well, what about Matthew Henry's commentary? If it's a thick one, it's a great bullet stop, but it really is not much help with the Bible. You know, you got guys like Clark, Warren Weersby, you know, Dumolo, Bollinger, John R. Rice. Those guys... And, and I'm not fighting it. I'm not saying they weren't good guys. I'm just saying when it came to getting Bible from them, you're, you're wasting your time. And then we have all the great evangelical minds today, and uh, you know the scholars at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is the mainstay probably today, uh, BBC, Cedarville, you know Lynchburg, Piedmont, Bob Jones Jr. All of them, man. If you ever, if you ever, if you ever want to see an absolute joke unfolding itself, just I mean, they couldn't find truth in the Bible with a laser beam and a flashlight if their life depended on it. And, you know, and I'm going to tell you right now, and you're going to see this, if you haven't seen it already, you're going to really see it today. The Greek and the Hebrew will be totally worthless, as they are, as far as getting any truth out of the Bible. You know, everybody likes to do fun things for their own decompressing of life or things, you know. I mean, video games. You see people playing video games. And I I think they're neat. I'm not smart enough to play them. I can't even send an email very well without video games. I'd never be able to do anything. And uh, I remember years ago, Pac-Man. Remember Pac-Man? He had this little thing that chased whatever it was across the screen. And uh, I was preaching in New York at a Bible conference with Dr. Ruckman and and, uh, some of the other guys there. And Pac-Man was really big. And I was preaching. And I told him, I said they ought, to, they ought to do a Christian version of Pac-Man and call it Ruckman, and he chases Bible scholars all over the screen and gobbles them up. You know, and uh, that was pretty popular uh, back in the day. But people do all kinds of stuff. You know, they uh, they play. You see people playing games on their iPhone. Uh, my wife is, plays solitary cards. So you can actually flip the. Card. I don't know how you do it, but I watch them. She's. Either that or she's dialed into Vegas, and I'm going to check the bank account and see on that. But, you know, people like golf, and that's great. I mean, uh, people like sports, track, football, baseball. Hey, it's all good. There's nothing wrong with it. Some like to hunt, some like to fish. I think it's great. Everybody needs something. This is not a criticism of any of this stuff. Everybody needs something to kind of break the monotony of life. And, uh, but for me, the two things I like to do for fun I I can't get into much of any of these things. But for me, the things that I like to do for fun uh, is, and I get a laugh and great satisfaction out of it, is I love to read what guys put out today about the Bible. And, you know, and it's absolutely ridiculous and totally outside the book. And I have fun sitting there reading it. I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff that people send me all week long. I get emails all over the place and I get you know, people sending me letters about this and letters about that. And uh, you wouldn't believe the stuff that gets sent to me that's flying around out there. Who, And every one of them have the same thing. I've got the truth of God. God gave it only to me, and now I'm going to reveal it to the world. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I look at him like my spiritual crossword puzzle. You know, I love to separate truth from heresy. Uh, for me, it's a great mind exercise it's a great obviously spiritual exercise and you know most people don't know that in the bible you don't just have to look at those things and wonder there's a test for things like that in the bible you know first corinthians chapter we talk about heresy and bad teaching and we talk about how bad it is because it confuses people and it a lot of people get caught up in it i get it but you know what paul said in first corinthians eleven nineteen? 19 He says, for there must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. You know what heresies do? Heresies show you what is real truth. And that's invaluable. And I've learned over the years how to examine those things and, and take them apart. And to me, that's invaluable because like Agar, all I really want is the truth, but I want a balance in the truth. And after 30 years or so, you begin to see a pattern how these guys develop, and you just you just follow the pattern. I mean, I, come on. You know what? You don't feel well. You go to the doctor. He'll give you a test to find out if you got the flu. Now, certainly, they're, they got tests all over the place if you got the coronavirus. Uh, they got a test if you got HIV. They got a test if you got TB. Uh, they got a test if you got Alzheimer's. You know, if you come home and you're Your somebody in your family's got Alzheimer's. They test it. Drive them a long way off. If they show back home, they're okay. (laughs) You know that's how you got to work it. There's a test for polio. I remember when I was a kid. I still got my vaccination. If you want to see it, we all had to get vaccinated for polio. Polio was killing everybody much more than the coronavirus was. And you know it seems like every four or five years something comes around that you know that is uh, that is a terrible thing. I remember polio. I remember, and most people don't remember this, the flu that we all get now, the common flu, that kicked in here around 1955, 1960. You know what they called it back then? The Asiatic flu. You know why? came from Asia. And now it's just so common as flu. You had all these different things that come in in years and years and years. And what I watch, and this shows you the breakdown of society. I mean, I've watched living through some of those things, how society itself has fractured in dealing with things back then than dealing with it today. And the reason for that is, and nobody would agree with this, the reason for that is, is back then our country was much more stable with God and the Bible. There were good preachers that were preaching the truth and people had a grip on things in life. Today we don't have that. It's just not there. And so it's a thing where, you know, They have a test for for polio. They have a test for diabetes. Your A1C level on your blood will tell you. You get past seven. You're pre-diabetic. You get much higher than that. And you know what? You're going to get insulin shots. Almost for everything, there's a test for. And hopefully, you know, in many of these things, they found a cure for it. And hopefully in time, they'll find one for what we're facing today. But saying that... In the Bible, there's also a test for heresy. And it's a simple six-point test. And I've never seen it fail. Over 30 years now, I've been, you know, looking at these things, talking about this, and to me, it's my relaxation. And I know the pattern very clearly, and I know the test to apply to it. I mean, you get a test, you're either positive or you're negative. And when it comes to the Bible, you're either positive or you're negative, and the test will prove which one you are. And that's what you got to look at. And as I said, Paul said we need to have heresies because if you know the truth and you're grounded in the truth and you know the test for the truth, then heresies, all they do is show you what's negative, the bad guys, the idiots to stay away from, and then the positive of truth, what you want to get the truth and have a good balance in the truth. And the second will be the scholars' union or the Alexandria cult, as I love to call them, you know, how they approach verses in the Bible that are tough ones, like we're looking at. I just get a kick out of reading these guys, hearing what they say. I mean, in your Bible, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through, I don't know, 8 or 9, you have one of the greatest stories of uh, this guy that was withered and, and, in, and couldn't walk, sitting by a pool of water, and every year an angel came down and stirred the waters, and whoever gets in first Olly olly in free so to speak, it gets healed. And you know what the scholars say? The scholars say that story should not be in your Bible because that could have never happened. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it talks about he that is born of God does not commit sin. Scholars go ballistic on that because they know that everybody sins, but they know nothing about the great doctrines of spiritual circumcision or salvation, so they have to change it to practice sin. See, I get a, that's a hoot to me. I love that. You got to see some of the verses in Hebrew they don't know what to do with. Hebrew is one of the three books in the Bible that you'll break your neck on if you don't get it. Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. They're all transitional books. Boy, do they break their neck. I get a kick out of that. I love it. I, I love to see these guys who have spent so much money, thousands of dollars, getting their degrees, getting this, getting that, and then how stupid they come uh, when it comes to really laying out the bible and we live in a world that you think that education when it comes to the bible anyhow makes you closer to god of course that's not true and somebody would say well what would your advice be to those guys get your money back somebody cheated you it's just that simple but you 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 look at it all the way around and the websites out there oh my goodness do i enjoy some of those Little baby boys trying to figure out great truths of the Bible by going back and forth, and at the end of the day, you can't tell what anybody believes. No truth in it at all. It's hilarious what you find today. And I can spend a whole afternoon doing that. Hey, to me, that's better than 10 old episodes of The Walking Dead, man. I mean, I can get into those things because they're all the same. They're educated beyond their intelligence, or there's some wannabe who does not want to be part of a local New Testament church structure. Every one of them. But they want to be the authority on the Bible. And they're all the same. Listen, that book will kill you or it will cure you, whatever your problem is. And uh, it's just that simple. And uh, all, all men who develop a heresy will, all, every one will follow the same pattern. And when you put the test to it, that's yeah, a piece of cake. And uh, as we enter into chapter 30, just a second here, uh, you're going to get an education this morning by how and just uh, uh, how to believe the book and use the book to figure it all out. Uh, you know, uh, you can throw your Hebrew and Greek books away and trash them and just. And just get into the Bible, and along with that, throw in your degree and get rid of it too. Now, let's look at our text today, and we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to cover verse 14, 15, and 16. And then in weeks to come, we're going to get into some stuff that (laughs) is really some good stuff. Let's read it here. Verse 14, There is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth And the needy from among men. The horse leech hath two daughters crying, Give, give. Uh, There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things, say not, it is enough. This is kind of like a little riddle. And I'll show you how to unlock the riddle here. This is like Samson, you know, giving his little riddles here. This is, and God has locked this thing away that if you don't get into the book and use the book, you can't get squat out of it. The horse leech hath two daughters. Crying, give, give. Uh, that, that's A horse leech is a blood sucker. So we get this one down. This is Baptist preachers and neo-evangelicals that just always say, give me money, give me money. They're horse leeches, but that's, a doc, that's the inspirational application. The horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. Somebody was telling me, came up after the meeting Thursday night and was telling me about a church out in Lee Summit someplace there that uh, sent all their people a three-page letter because they're going through the tough times that, like everybody else is. Three-page three letter. It didn't do anything about your family. didn't say anything about helping anybody. didn't say anything about we're here for you. All it said was, we need your money to survive. Three-page letter. Give, give. That's what the horse leech does. The horse leech has two sisters crying, give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things that say not it is enough. And here comes the four things. The grave and the barren womb, the earth that has not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you, Father, as we go out through the uh, YouTube today. We thank you for the ability to go into people's homes and to uh, keep them abreast in the Word of God and continue to teach them and give them uh, what they need. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us we love you so much. We ask your blessings now upon this time and uh, give us what we need. Uh, protect us, keep us safe. Uh, Lord, uh, uh, steer us through the word of God through these tough times and we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it, amen. amen. Okay, let's look at this verse by verse and in some cases word by word and we're going to use the God-given text of your King James 1611 authorized in the English to show you how this thing works. You'll learn some things today. Verse 14. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. Now, you'll see uh, what I did last week uh, in laying out the nation of Israel Uh, in that generation in five ways. Now, that's going to help us today. That's why I did what I did, because I knew where we were going here. Now, historically, this verse, verse 14, obviously, if you could probably figure it out by now, will be the nations that opposed the nation of Israel and attacked the Jews from the very beginning in 1900 when the Zionist movement began to grain ground and the Belfar Declaration began to put forth after World War I, Uh, And all the wars that followed after 1948, and I listed those for you last week, those would be the people of this verse that that are trying to destroy, whose jaw teeth are as knives and devour the poor. The poor and the needy, wherever you find them in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, will always be the nation of Israel, also in the Old Testament. And uh, you know, I showed you last week how that, that would be Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, a little bit later on, as time goes on, uh, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation uh, uh, Organization, comes in. You have Iraq and Iran, Pakistan, the Arab League, all of those nations would be fit into that verse from a historical context. Also, it would be the Roman Catholic Church, who has never recognized the Jewish state and has aligned itself with the Muslim world. you know, and I know people, people asked me this before. <coughs> They say, it appears that the Catholic Church and the Muslims are so far apart, how could they ever get together? Well, you know, actually, the Muslim nations are pretty apart. They've been fighting each other and killing each other long before they started killing us. The splinter groups of factions and the different uh, religious groups over there are all connected. They've been killing each other for the last 500 years. But I guarantee you, they'll all get together no matter what their interproblems are, much like the Muslims in the Catholic Church, they can all put those aside to accomplish one goal. You know what that goal is? Wipe out the nation of Israel because that is their main goal. And, you know, it's a thing where the Catholic Church has never recognized the Jewish state of Israel why, it wasn't until in the 60s when they had the Va- first Vatican Council that they even absolved them for the killing of Christ. The reason why they won't would never until this day will not recognize them being in the land because they said they killed Christ and they have no title to that land. And, of course, we know that not to be true. And we know the real reason behind that. It goes all the way back to 400 with Augustine who wrote a book, City of Our God, and he made it clear that Jerusalem Uh, was going to be surpassed by Rome, and Rome got all of the promises and everything that went to the nation of Israel. I mean, you can get it and read it if you want to. But she's always taken the side of the Muslims. Uh, Yasser Arafat uh, went over to the Vatican, and the Vatican recognized his Palestinian state. Never recognized Israel. Of course, it might have helped that Arafat was married to a blonde Catholic woman, but that may have pulled some things together for him. But uh, that's the way it's always been. I showed you the four wars from 1948 up to 1973 and how the hatred of the Jews and the Jewish state is the issue of the Middle East and certainly the issue that we face today. Now, that's historically, putting it into a context. Now, let's look at it doctorly. Obviously, this is pretty easy, too. You know, uh, doctrinally, it was the it will be the Antichrist and his attack on the Jews in the last half of the tribulation period, and we see this in Roman uh, Revelation chapter twelve and thirteen goes into great detail. Matthew chapter twenty five goes into great detail. Uh, Matthew chapter twenty four goes into great detail, and so we see how that that verse historically is the nations that have been against Israel, but it also has a doctrinal application that will put it into the future tribulation. Okay, look at verse 15. It says, The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, Give, give. And uh, doctrinally, we now have entered into uh, the tribulation period itself with this verse, and what follows here uh, will be quite amazing. Notice up to this point, couldn't find my Hebrew lexicon or my Greek New Testament this morning. I've just had to rely on the Bible. Now, let's look at the horse leech. We call that in our gener- in our world, in our culture, a horsefly. And if you know anything about flies, a horsefly is about 20 to 30 times larger than your average garden variety housefly. They're huge. And uh, they're called horseflies because they fundamentally land on the back of horses. I guess they do anything, but... Uh, it's a thing where, and they're bloodsuckers. They, 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 that's what they do. They bite down into the skin and they live off the blood and they lay their eggs and all that kind of stuff. And the horse leech here in the Bible will be the devil himself. And the way that you know that is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 27, the devil is called Beelzebub. And Beelzebub is a name that means Lord of the flies or Lord of filth. And in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1, and again in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20, your garden variety flies are likened to devils, or we call them demons. And of course, uh, you know, uh, flies uh, live and breed on dead things and filth. During World War II and some of the Anywhere you went, when the dead was left, I mean, they were covered in flies. Flies nest in that. They feed in that, and they they reproduce in that. Dead flies, uh, dead flies, or flies, or the, uh, or absolutely feed on dead flesh. And uh, and a dead flesh is a picture of an unsaved man. I've always found that interesting. I've never smoked, and I never drank, and you know, a lot of guys, these young generations today, they kind of. Crack me up! Uh, you always see them in the back of their jeans, in their pocket, a round can to skull, you know, uh, or they chewing bet tobacco, and you got it in their jaw and everything in there. And I, I, you know, I'm kind of an observer of things and watch things. Did you ever notice that when they spit that out, whatever you got in your mouth, your chaw or whatever it is, do you realize that flies will not land on that? It's one of the most greatest scientific experiments you'll ever take. You get that mouthful of that stuff and chew it up and then spit it out, flies will not land on it. Now, have you ever seen what flies do land on? (laughs) That ought to tell you something, man. But that's just between me and you, and uh, I'm just telling you, it's crazy. And uh, he's called Beelzebub. Flies will, they're the perfect type, them and mosquitoes, they're small, demons are small, or devils are small, the way they do what they do, and they're very pesty. Do you ever try to sit down and eat a meal outside or at a picnic, or even in your house, and the flies just keep coming after what you're eating, or you got to shoo them away, they just keep coming, or you're sitting there trying to do something and they're buzzing around you, or the mosquitoes are getting to you. It, they distract you they, and they want to get into your food and they want to contaminate your food and you've got to brush them off or keep them away. That's exactly what the devil and his crowd wants to do with the spiritual food of the Word of God. And in Ecclesiastes, you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1, we see how that they are part of the destruction of the Bible. For the Bible says dead flies... Cause the ointment of the apothecary, that's the Bible, Bama Gilead, to send forth a stinking savor. That's a smell. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, the Bible talks about that when we talk about Christ or we preach the Word of God, uh, that we are a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. God is big on smells. If you know Song of Solomon, his relationship with you is likened to a woman who is perfumed and smells great and like lilies or roses or flowers. So women like to wear, you know, uh, perfume and, and to enhance their, uh, you know, their womanhood and to be attractive and to smell good. And hey, there ain't nothing wrong with that. I, I appreciate it. But it's a thing where the Bible does the same thing to God. And what happened, if you got an ASV, an NIV, or even a new King James Bible this morning, your Bibles are contaminated by dead flies, the devil and his crowd, and are a stench in the nostrils of God because dead flies caused the ointment of the apothecary to send forth, you know, a stinking savor. So the horse leech here will be the devil, king of the flies, a bloodsucker. We want to go to Psalm 16 to see how that fits into the tribulation. So the horse leech here will be the devil, a bloodsucker, and he's king over all the devils, the normal garden variety flies, and he uh, leads them in the tribulation period. Hey, look, Ma, no hands. Look, Ma, no Hebrew, no Greek. We just go to the Bible, and I told you today that not only is there going to be a lot of information, but even more important to that to me, to you, Is for you to have the ability to see how you unlock your Bible with things like this that the Greek and the Hebrew won't even, and I know we're in the Old Testament, or in the the Old Testament, so we're not talking about Greek, but the Hebrew or the Greek in the New Testament will be worthless to you. Now, let's look on here. Now, this horse leech, now we know who he is, hath two daughters saying, Give, give. And I was kidding about the evangelical crowd and the Baptists, but uh, that's the way they operate. But now, if you want to understand this, here again, we've got to go back to the Bible. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 5. In the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 5, almost toward the end. And we want to look at verses 5 through 11. <clears throat> now, I want to show you how that you use the Bible to do this. You use the Bible to be able to put things together uh, the way we are going to do it here. Now, I'll read it for you. Pick it up in verse 5 at the paragraph mark. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, It is a nephron. That's a weight, like a basket, like a bushel basket. Holds so much. That goeth forth, and he said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. Now, remember, we're in the tribulation period now. <clears throat> and behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the Ephraim, Ephraim. And he said, This is wickedness, and he cast it into the midst of the Ephraim, and he cast a weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. Then lifted up mine eyes and I looked and beheld there came out ah, two women. And the wind was in their wings. These women have wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up uh, uh, the Ephraim uh, between earth and the heaven. And I said unto the angel that talketh with me, whether do these bear the Ephraim?" Ephraim? And he said unto me to build it A house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now, there's nothing like a King James Bible to clean up a college education when it comes to the Bible. And let me say that the context of Zechariah chapter, or the whole book of Zechariah, will be the tribulation period and the second coming. It just depends on where you're at in it. So, with that being said, we now uh, know our text here will be something in the tribulation. Now, we already saw the horse leech as the devil, and now we see that he has two daughters. And uh, verse 7 says that this is a woman. Verse 8 says that she's defined by the Bible as wickedness. And the Bible says in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon. Now, there's no question in our minds, left to anything that this woman will be the great whore of Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the great whore of Mestri Babylon the Great, the mother of Harlot. That's who she is. Now, she hath two daughters. Now, again, this is where last week becomes invaluable to understanding this week because all through history we have a historical record of this, Two nations have been against Israel and will be the two main forces that the devil will use in the tribulation period to wipe them out. One will be the Muslim nations. The other one will be the Roman Catholic Church. These will be the two daughters who come forth out of this wicked woman in verse 9. And verse 11 says, Who built her a house, temple, Antichrist, in, in Babylon or Shinar during the tribulation. And this is Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Daniel eleven, thirty-one, 31, Daniel 8, 13. This is where the abomination of desolation takes place, where he goes into the temple in Shinar, Babylon, that has been built by these two daughters along with a wicked woman. See how that easy that was? I mean, if you just stick with the Bible... No Hebrew, no Greek, just an infallible, absolute book of truth that God gives us with no flies in it, and it's absolutely the way you got it. Now, look at verse 15. Now, here we go. Now, we got that out of the way. Let's look at this here, verse 15. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things that say not it is enough. Okay, here we go. Here we go. The first thing is the grave. And that is telling us that until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and casts death and hell into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, there's going to be no satisfying the grave, no end to death. In fact, uh, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 14, during the tribulation, which this is a reference to, that hell has enlarged herself and opened her mouth uh, without measure. So in the tribulation... Death is not going to go out of nor is it going to be satisfied. In fact, in the last battle, in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 12, and, you know, uh, in in the book of Revelation, you're going to find that in the last battle, 200 million men die in one battle in one valley. And the Bible says... The blood is three and a half feet high for a yeah, 160 miles around. That's what I said, Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 12 says that after that battle, it takes seven months to bury all the dead. Hell, the grave is never satisfied. It won't be till Christ comes back and takes away death and death and puts it in hell because he's got the keys to death and hell. Now, the next thing here is the barren womb. Now we know from last couple of weeks that this has to be the nation of Israel, uh, the barren fig tree. Now, it says barren womb. Now, I'm going to show you another way to study the nation of Israel. And there's a number of ways to do it. She's likened to a fig tree. She's likened to a vine tree. But you're going to find in your Bible, in the Old Testament, there are seven women who are barren and cannot have children and later on have a child who are a picture of the barren womb or the nation of Israel that has an inability to bear fruit. Our first one would be in Genesis chapter 11. That would be Sarah. Our second one would be in Genesis chapter 25. That would be Rebecca. Our third one would be in Genesis 29. That would be Rachel. Our fourth one would be First Samuel 1. That would be Hannah. Our fifth one would be in Jude chapter 13. That is Manoah. Judges 13, excuse me, that's Manoah. In 2 Kings 4, we find our sixth one, that is a Shumanite woman. And in Luke chapter 1, we find our seventh, and that would be Elizabeth. Now, all seven of these women, and this is a great study to put together, all goes together with Israel. All these seven women are barren, just like Israel. And in time, each one of them gives birth to a son who is a picture of, of the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of the nation of Israel. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. It's an incredible study. Now you see, you know, is how to put the book together. This is how you do it. You let the Bible interpret itself. You, we haven't stepped one second outside the scriptures themselves. We just followed a clear trail of evidence Real Bible truth will always have, listen to me now. Real Bible truth will always have three witnesses. And we talked about three being the completion of things and three forming the balance in things. And real Bible truth will have three witnesses to that truth. The first one will be the witness of the Spirit. The second will be the witness of history itself. And the third one will be the witness of the trail of evidence in Scripture as the Bible defines itself, not you defining it because you want to teach some heresy or bad teaching. And all three of these now will form a balance. And this is how you put the Bible together. Using all the keys throughout the Bible and connecting them, it will lay it out for you, just like we're doing here. Now, the next thing he says here is the earth that is not filled with water. Now, this should be easy to most of you if you've been around here any length of time. We already know we're dealing with the Antichrist, the tribulation period. This will be a reference to the ministry of Elijah in the last three and a half years in the tribulation period of him shutting up heaven that it won't rain. And in the Bible, it 's called the former and the latter reign i 've given you the references before joel two thirty three job thirty seven 2 chronicles 6, 26, 2 chronicles seven twelve proverbs sixteen fourteen and fifteen Psalm sixty eight eight and nine revelation eleven six second samuel you know uh, twenty three four hosea ten twelve jeremiah fourteen twenty two isaiah five six they 're all through the bible the best one you 're going to find is in the book of james and this will be James chapter 5, which is all the tribulation period. And it says in verse 17, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. That's the last half of the tribulation period. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the fruit ah, brought forth, her what fruit? That's the second coming of Christ. So when it's talking about the earth that is not filled with water, that's no mystery if you know your Bible. That's the former and the latter rain going on with, uh, uh, with Elijah. And then it says, here's the fourth thing, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. So the fire here just keeps going. And, of course, fire, again, just using the Bible, fire is a picture of God's judgment in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. You'll find it again in Revelation 1.14, Revelation 19.12, Revelation 2.18, Jeremiah 4.4, 2 Thessalonians 1.7, Nahum 2.3, Isaiah uh, 9.5. And uh, it's a reference to God pouring out His wrath on the earth in the tribulation and men crying out for it to stop. I can't take it anymore. I can't do another day of this. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, it ain't enough yet. And He keeps pouring it on. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, you'll see this in Psalms, over there in uh, over there in uh, Revelation chapter six, verses nine and ten. You got a reference to some people who are called or said there are the souls under the altar. Those are the people that are killed in the tribulation period, and their souls are under the altar, and they're crying out. You know what they're asking? How long? How long? How long? Before you stop this? You go through Psalms 51, Psalms 54, Psalms 55, 56, 57, Psalms 59, 60, 61, Psalm 64, 68, Psalms 69. You'll find all of them. Lord, deliver me. Lord, how long? Lord, uh, hear my prayer. Lord, how long is it going to be? Psalms 13, verses 1 and 2. How long without forget me, O Lord? Forever, how long without hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemies be exalted? Four times, somebody asking how long. You know what God says? It's not enough yet. Not enough. The judgment of God, the fire, it's not enough. God has some things he wants to accomplish and the people caught in that thing. Incredible. How easy it is. Now, you see, that's just how all your Bible goes together. It's not complicated. It's a very simplistic form if you just use the right form. The importance of allowing the Word of God to interpret itself, allowing the Bible, the pure Word of God, and we saw it in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every Word of God is pure. How could you want to change that if that's true? And he says he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. That's the word of God and the Lord. Why would you want to mess with that? And it comes down to uh, the importance of understanding uh, the movement of the hand of God uh, in our times. And people can't see it today. You know, I, I, I look at everything and try to put it in a spiritual context. I, I don't do it all the time. I try to. But there's so much out there. But, you know, if you know your Bible, and when you get a handle on it, a lot of it just comes natural. But, you know, our government, insurance companies, leaders of our nation are quick to point out to us how that national disasters like floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, they always say, you know, they always put them in a the category of an act of God. And that's okay. I get that. But at the same time, they fail to see God's hand taking action in the 20, 21st century to bring his people back to the land. Amen. They can do one in a natural disaster, that's an act of God, but the greatest generation in the history of the world and the greatest event outside the first coming of Christ, they can't see God's hand in that. I want to tell you something. That's an act of God in bringing the people back to the land for 2,500 years. And now that's why here uh, we take the Bible as God gave it to us, preserved, inspired, perfect. We don't pay attention to these little wannabes out there that want to, you know, discuss the Bible and have the little websites and people to put out all this goofy stuff that, you know, uh, they all follow the same pattern and they all fail the test the same way. You know, we take the Bible as God gave it to us. We believe it's preserved. We believe it's inspired. We believe it's perfect. We believe that everything in it is by the hand of God, and we believe the hand of God, as everything in that book, will be the hand of God of everything down through history. You know, God said in Luke chapter 20, verse 45, and it's one of the key verses in my own life that I can't even tell you how many years ago when I was just a young guy trying to put it all together. You know, I was bombarded just like everybody else was. People wanted me to go to Bible college. People wanted me to do this. You got to do the Greek. You have to do the Hebrew. You have to get an education. You have to get all this stuff. I, I was hit with it just like everybody is today. But back in my day, there was, few, there was still some few sane people around. There ain't anybody sane today. And, you know, I remember one night I was coming through the Bible, and I was in the book of Luke, and I hit Luke chapter 24. And down by the end of that chapter, I found verse 45. Changed my whole perspective of everything. Actually changed my life. And it simply says there in that great verse that, uh, that He opens our understanding that we might understand the Scriptures. And I'm going to tell you right now, if God doesn't open your understanding and God doesn't give you His book, then you're never going to get it any other way. There's no man, no institution, no Bible college, no professor, no Bible scholar who can circumvent the plan of God. God's plan is you believe in a book that God gave you, loving Him, getting saved, falling in love with that book, and then investing your life in it, and through that process, and I might say only that process, at some point, God will open up our understanding that we may understand the Scriptures. And uh, that's the way it works. Well, we'll hold up there today. There's a lot more to come in chapter 30, and we'll be back in it next week. A Thursday night Bible study, remember now, there'll be a, a call-in hotline. You can call in your questions. I'll be right here. I'll be over there. But I'll be uh, here answering your questions and leading you through those things. And I'll have the number up on the board. I'll put it out, uh, you know, several times in a night when I start. Write it down, but it'll be on the board over here. And uh, you can uh, call them in that way. Or you can, uh, you can go on chat and put it in through the chat line and they'll get it up to me. And uh, we, we're not going to let anything stop our times in the Word of God together. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for praying for us. I might say that, again, thank you for the leadership of this church that has stood up and uh, been a strong salient for the younger Christians. You know, uh, so many people are hunkering down and hiding in their homes. And, you know, I understand if you have medical conditions, that's exactly what you need to do. But, uh, you know, we have, a, we, have a, we have a job to do. And, uh, it, it, you know, I, I said, said the other night, you know, it's the, you know, we're facing a crisis. But, you know, all down through history, Christians have faced all kinds of crises. Whatever we're going through right now was nothing what the Waldensians threw when the Black Plague hit back in 1200. And they had nothing except the Bible. And we'll get through this. But we'll only get through it together. God's got a purpose in all this, and, you know, uh, some of it's understandable. I think it's interesting that, you know, history repeating itself, that Italy's getting clobbered, uh, you know, more than any place else on the planet. And you can look around and see the hand of God, and I get it. I'm just telling you. You know, God is doing something. But the thing you want to remember is that when God took the nation of Israel into captivity back in 606 B.C., people who were doing good, like Daniel and the Hebrew children, they went into captivity too. It's not a fact that we're all going to get spared this. It's the fact that even if we get it, just like Daniel going down into Babylon, God was with him every step of the way. And that's where your strength has to be. And that's why, yes, thank you, Jesus. That's why we as leaders have to lead from the top down. And I, again, thank those young men and young ladies that came up to me, you know, Thursday night, our singles and our young high school kids that are, I uh, just came up and said, hey, Bob, anything you need. I'm here tonight because, you know, this church has given me so much. Now's the time. The church needs me. Maybe the older folks need food or they need this or they need that. I'm here, and uh, just let me know what I need to do. doesn't get any better than that. Or most, uh, you know, churches, the kids are out watching a movie or doing this or doing that and care nothing about what the church is for them. I appreciate what God has given us here, and thank everybody from the leadership up all the way down. Let's hold the line, let's do what we need to do, and uh, let God lead us through this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you so much. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us and you've given us. Pray for our church, for our church family. Help our people to make good decisions. Help them not to do something, uh, Lord, that puts them any more than at risk than we already are. And Lord, we know Lord, you can get it going to the gas station, picking up the pump. You can get it going to the grocery store, pushing the cart. You can pick up a food box of cereal and decide that's not what you want. Somebody else just a minute ago decided the same thing, and you get it off of that. There's no safe place other than the Word of God. That is the only thing that's going to get us through, no matter what happens to us personally as individuals. We have to trust that book, and we have to stay together with each other. And, Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for all you do for us now. We love you. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.